So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to give you a little background and overview of the book itself. I promise you we'll be teaching more verses starting next week. But this week, we're going to look at the rapture of the church. Something, did anybody have any questions or thoughts about that? Any concerns about that? I got lots of questions about that. Hopefully by the end of today, again, there's areas where we can agree to disagree. There's other, other believers, but I think it's so clear to me based on what I see in Scripture. But again, it'll all get sorted out, right? Ultimately, when the Lord comes back, takes us all, and everybody that thought they were going to have to stay here will be thankful with us. Amen? <laughs> but let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask now, Lord, as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. And Lord, we, may we live every day in light of your soon return when you will call us home, but may you find us busy about your work. I pray for everyone who's here today, anybody new especially, may they feel welcomed and loved. We pray also for those that are watching this via live stream, those that will hear this on the radio later, that Lord, you would use it for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, you're a gracious God, a loving God, and a merciful God. And we're so thankful that we get to be your sons and daughters adopted into your family. I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Amen. So Revelation is a book that there's entire, there are pastors that just won't teach it, because too many people just think it's so difficult to understand. But when you teach the whole counsel of God, you don't skip over anything. And I truly believe that the book of Revelation is very easy to understand. And so to give us some background again quickly, for those who may be new, we all need reminders. The word apocalypsis, where we get the word for revelation, means the unveiling and it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You hear me say it all the time. When we know Jesus better, we will love him more, right? So we get to know him better through the book of Revelation. Again, it's also known for end times prophecy, and we're going to be looking at that going forward starting this morning. So thus far, here's what we've seen. In chapter 1, we saw there's, a, there's an outline in Revelation 119, the things which are, the things, the things which were, the things that are, and the things that shall be, things that are going to take place in the future. We're starting there this morning. In chapter 1, we see the picture of Jesus in heaven. If you want to see a picture of Jesus in heaven, go read Revelation chapter 1. He's no longer a baby in a manger, and he's no longer being beaten or mocked or hanging on a cross. Amen. He is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. And when you see the picture of him in heaven, we know he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He is our victorious, risen, living, all-powerful, sovereign Savior and Lord. And he dwells in heaven in the midst of his people. We saw in the text in Revelation 1, he's clothed with a garment down to his feet. He's girded at the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair are white like wool, as, as, as white as snow, and his eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like fine brass, as refined in the furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, with seven, in his right hand with seven stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. You know in heaven, we're not going to need the S-U-N, because we're going to have the S-O-N, Amen. And he's going to illuminate heaven. Anybody excited about heaven? I, I'm ready. Amen? Come quick. By the way, you know why? We're going to talk about this this morning. You know why the Lord hasn't come back yet? He's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles, which means he's waiting for that last person who he knows is going to be saved. So if it's you, <laughs> just get saved today. We can all go to heaven and be hanging out with Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? 
So if it's you, we're glad you're here, but let's get ready. Let's get, move forward with the Lord. When John, his disciple, sees Jesus in heaven, we're going to see it this morning, he's going to fall to his face. Because the presence of Almighty God is awe-inspiring, and I long for the day to see him. He tells him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. So we see in chapter one, the picture again of Jesus. And in chapter two and three, if you were here the last seven weeks, we went through the seven churches. So chapter one is a picture of heaven, Jesus in heaven. Chapter two and three encompasses what we would call the church age. The church age began when Jesus ascended into heaven. And then in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And that's when the church age began. So the church age has been from about 33 AD until now. And we're in the church age. Now, during the church age, we saw the seven churches, and we saw that God both admonished them, the letter was written to these individual churches and to the individual pastors, and would admonish them on the things they were doing well, uh, and most of them, and then areas where they needed to change. And it's a picture for the church as well, you know, the disciples who they, they had lost their first love, or they were compromising their faith. So I would encourage you, we have those on our website. Now, we come to chapter four, and now we're going from the things which were the things which are, now it's the things which are to come. And so what's coming next, we will get, begin again this morning looking at that. Now, we saw, it, I do believe this morning's text is clear picture of the rapture. And again, some will disagree, and that's okay. Because uh, it's not an essential for salvation, right? Again, what's essential is Jesus Christ is God. Jesus, you know, came to, you know, virgin birth, died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, creator of all things, that the word of God is without error. Amen. Those are essentials that if we disagree, we really need to have a discussion. Now, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you real quickly some of the other ways people look at it. Okay, there are three ways people look at the rapture. Some don't believe the rapture is going to take place at all. Uh, they believe that the church will just go with the Lord at the second coming. It's, it, you know, like a post-trib rapture, if you will. Then there's people that believe the tribulation, that the church will be taken away in the middle of the tribulation uh, after the abomination of desolation that we'll be teaching on in Daniel. As a matter of fact, when we get done with Revelation, normally I would go back to Matthew, but because of its tie to Revelation, we're going to teach Daniel next, okay? So we're going to go from Revelation to Daniel because Daniel really ties into Revelation, okay? So the prophecy there. So there's some that believe that we'll go through a portion of it and then we'll be raptured. And there's a lot of people that I respect that believe that. And if that's your belief, that's okay. Now, I personally believe, and I'm going to teach it this morning from this perspective, that this is clearly a picture of the rapture. And let me tell you why. In chapter two and three, the chapter, the church is mentioned 19 times. After the, we're going to see this in this morning's text that John, who's writing the book, is going to be caught up. So we get the word rapture or pazo or rapturo in Latin, where he's going to get caught up. And then he's going to be looking at all the stuff that's taking place upon the earth from a heavenly perspective. And you'll never see the church mentioned again. And I just don't believe it's mentioned because we're not here. We're in heaven. Amen. And so that's just the perspective I'm going to teach it from. I want you to understand that. There's also a view called preterist. I, I know that I, I usually don't get all theological like this in that way, but a preterist is someone who believes that everything in the book of Revelation took place in AD 70, that it already happened. 
I'm going to be kind. I love these people. No. Because if it already happened, first of all, the book of Revelation was written in 90 to 95 AD, and it's talking about things that haven't happened yet. And second of all, they actually believe we're in the millennial kingdom right now. And if we're in the millennial kingdom right now, then do you see lions laying down with lambs? We've got any kids playing by the viper's nest? Is that happening right now? And by the way, that says that Satan is chained. And I've talked to them. I'm like, you think Satan's chained? He's on an awful long chain. Can I get him out of that? So look, there are people that believe that and they get caught up in that and they love to debate me. Every time I meet someone, you know, that's what, like their first thing they want to talk about, right? Well, where are you? I'm a preterist. I'm like, well, okay, bro. When did the 120 pound hailstones fall from the sky that were on fire? When did a third of the world's population die in a single day? Makes absolutely no sense to me. Now, that being said, I don't want to debate over that kind of stuff because ultimately it won't change anything. What really matters is that we love Jesus we know that we're going to spend eternity with him if we know him. And so this morning's text, like I said, we're going to really look at just a glimpse of heaven. So if you have your outline, grab it. I'm only going to look at three verses. I promise we're going to be in bigger chunks starting next week. I've already got next, next week's message lined out. We're going to finish the chapter next week. But I tell the message, a glimpse into heaven. We're going to get a little glimpse into heaven. How many of you guys have thoughts about what is heaven like? Amen. And, and have you noticed the more people that you know that go there, the more thoughts you have about it, the more you have this eternal focus, we're going to get a small glimpse of heaven this morning. So God is on the throne. And first of all, he rescues us, his bride, before he pours out his righteous judgment. Again, the church, all believers will be raptured. The word there is caught up or snatched away. And again, as you, it's harpazo in Greek, and it's, rap, it's rapturo in Latin, and that's where we get the word rapture. You know, people say to you, oh, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is. It's just, again, it's a translation. And I put a little background on there. Beginning the year, seven-year tribulation, verses four, in verse four and five, we're going to see the scene in heaven prior to judgment being poured out. We're going to get a heavenly perspective and what's about to take place. In chapters 6 to 19, we'll get inside of what will happen as judgment is poured out. Now, some people wonder, why would God have a time of judgment like that? Why doesn't he just either bring everybody and wipe everybody else out? Why would he do that? Well, the reason he's doing that is it's, it's one last opportunity for people to get saved. Amen? Amen. And, when, and I believe there's going to be a huge number, especially of Jewish people who are going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. We know there's 144,000. We know about the witnesses, and we'll be going through this over the next several months. But what a great picture. And so th this is still God's grace, right? He's allowing them to see what would happen if they continue to reject him, but it's still an opportunity to be saved. And there will be millions, I believe, saved during the tribulation. Many will come out at the other side. And those that do, when we will, we will return and we will rule and reign over them for a thousand years with a millennial kingdom, with God on the throne. And won't that be amazing? He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years. Amen? If you're new today, you're like, these people, what are they? Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's the Bible. Can I get an amen to that? It's in there for a reason. Second, he is the focal point of heaven. This is talking about God. We're going to see this morning a glimpse of heaven. And, and as John gets a glimpse of heaven, he's not going to talk about the streets of gold. 
He's not going to talk about the pearly gates. He's not going to talk about, you know what he's going to talk about? The presence of God. And the focus of it is the throne of God because that's where God is. You know what makes heaven heaven? God's there. Amen. And that's what makes heaven happen, heaven. He is the focus of heaven. And he's a loving, gracious, and merciful God. And we're going to get a glimpse of that this morning. Almighty God sits on the throne. He shares it with no one. You can't tell God to scoot over. Don't do that. Amen. <laughs> we worship him. He's on the throne. He's a faithful God who loves us. And then thirdly, he is sovereign in his power and faithful to his promises. We're going to see a picture of the fact that of his promises in heaven in these couple of verses this morning. As he's on the throne, it's surrounded by a rainbow. And don't think about what the rainbows come to mean, okay? But it's surrounded by a rainbow, and the rainbow was God's covenant, right? A promise that he made after he flooded the world that he would never bring judgment upon the earth again by flooding the world. And it's, it's a promise. So every time we see the rainbow, we're reminded of God's promises, And it's awesome to me that God is in heaven, seated on the throne, surrounded by a rainbow, because even though he's all-knowing, almighty, sovereign, all-powerful God, we know he can do anything, but we know there's some things he will never do, and one of them is he will never break his promises. He's faithful to his promises. He's not going to just get so mad he's going to smoke us all and start over, amen? I'm tired of these people. He's not going to do that. He's made promises to us. And I love his promises. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. Amen? You're always on his mind. He knows you best. He loves you most. He'd rather die than live without you. He proved it on the cross. So he is God. He's in control and he's faithful to his word. So let's take a look there. Some of you are like, I went to the wrong church this morning. Where's the church just talking about something else this morning? I love the Bible. I love the whole counsel of God. How about you? The Bible rocks and it's so good. And we're going to get a picture of our Savior. So let's begin there in verse 1. And I love this. And it says here, verse 1, after these things. What things? The church age. So we got the church age, we got the seven letters of the seven churches, and now he's moving to a whole different time. So after these things. Now, one of the key things is the word after these things here is metatauta. Metatauta, so what it is in, the, in Greek, and it signals what we have begun, the third section of this book, after these things that are, at the end of the church age. So starting in chapter 4, and it's going to go all the way to, to the end of the book, he's speaking of future events, a time of great tribulation where God will pour out his wrath and his righteous judgment upon the earth. Now, some people struggle with this. We had a guy that used to attend our church here. He got saved at, uh, when we were back at the community center. And whenever we would talk about the wrath of God, he would like leave church for a month because he would just be mad. Why would God do that? I don't understand. Why would... So first of all, he's a loving, gracious, and merciful God who desires that none should perish, no, not one. Can I get an amen to that? He loves you so much. That being said, he's also a righteous God and sin must be judged because sin separates us from God. And, and sin must be dealt with. And if God doesn't righteously judge sin, he's not righteous. Amen? Now, you might say, well, that doesn't seem fair because we were born with a sin nature. And then God's going to judge us for being sinners when we were born this way. You know, what kind of God is that? You know, and I always would ask people, I have that argument all the time as a pastor. And I'd say, well, what do you think should happen? What do, you, what do you think God should do? Well, I don't know. He's the one that, he's the one that allowed us to be born with a sin nature. Maybe he should pay for it. <laughs> 
It's exactly what he did. Can I get an amen to that? So I want you to know that when we see the righteous judgment of God, it's only because he's done everything he can to redeem sinful man. He's offered it universally. He must be accepted individually. He will never force his love on anybody. He wants to have that relationship with you. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. We saw that last week. That door is open from the inside. Amen? We have to let him in. And desires that none should perish, no, not one. So he's saying after these things, after the church age, now we're moving on to this time of judgment that is coming. The seven years of great tribulation, well, God will pour out his righteous judgment upon those who reject him and reject his son. When we get to Daniel, it's referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. I don't want to give you all headaches, so we'll just talk about it when we get to Daniel. But it's seven, so there's a seven-year period of God's righteous judgment coming, which is one last opportunity for people to be saved. And praise God for that opportunity. In the form of, here's the judgment. It's going to come in seven seals. We'll talk as we get there. Seven trumpets and seven bold judgments. Again, chapter four and five, the scene from heaven as they're looking down during, on it upon, during the great tribulation. Chapter six to 19, insight will happen. We'll see what happens during that judgment time. And then chapters 20 to 22, we'll see the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and our eternal state. So that's good stuff. Amen? It says this in Matthew. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall there ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, I will shorten the days. Some people will read that and say, see, there's the church in the middle of the great tribulation, because he says for the elect's sake. I believe in this text, Matthew is the gospel written largely to the Jews. And it's the gospel that focuses on all the fulfillment of prophecy uh, of the Old Testament in Jesus. And I believe the elect here can be both believers that are getting saved during the tribulation, but I also believe it's, it's the nation of Israel and the Jews. Amen? So God has got a plan for them. By the way, I'm pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. Amen? And we met in a synagogue for about a year. And you know what? This is a Jewish book written by a Jewish people about a Jewish Savior. Can I get an amen to that? So we're pro-Israel, but again, we're not, no one's saved because of your nationality. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're blessed. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. He didn't appoint us to wrath. So when he's pouring out wrath upon the earth, he's going to take his children away, his bride away first. Amen? And again, some will disagree with that, and that's okay. First, First Thessalonians also says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So repeatedly, we see in the Bible that God's delivering us from the wrath. And here's what mid-trib and post-trib people are concerned about. They think by teaching this that we're going to be snatched away, that when the wrath comes, we won't be ready. Well, here's the reality. Whatever persecution we go through in this life, our God is greater. And if you're walking in the Holy Spirit, you will always be ready no matter what comes. Amen? So I'm not afraid of that. We're not fearful of the tribulation, but I also trust in the sovereignty of God. And I trust what his word says, that he's not, gonna, he's not appointing us under wrath. The wrath of the lamb, it takes a lot to make a, a, a lamb angry, doesn't it? We're seeing an angry lamb? <laughs> Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're going to see in Revelation 6, the wrath of the lamb. It takes a lot to get a lamb 
angry. And the Lord, again, his desire is that we would walk with him. It says there, again, after these things, and it says in, in Revelation 6, for the, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who was able to stand? And the word for wrath there in the original language is not a sudden explosive anger. It's a slow, growing anger that comes to a place where what that means is that God has been suffering long. Imagine, again, we can't, but imagine what God has seen on this planet in the last 6,000 years. Imagine what he sees every day. He sees every rape, every murder, every child that's being abused, anger, wars, blasphemy, He sees it all and he endures it all. And why does he endure it? Because he loves you and he loves me. Because he desires that none should perish, no, not one. And he's endured it. But as he endures it, he, he suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Amen? Righteous judgment will come. And as believers, every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? Because we see this judgment, we'll say, why did he write it down if we're not going to go through it? Because he wrote it down so we will understand the heavy price that unrepentant sin will pay and the mocking of Almighty God. And we want to see people delivered from that, don't we? Amen? The word there, again, is a, it's a slow building up anger over a period of time. And again, it's one that doesn't dissipate, you know, it's not a hot-headed, God doesn't get angry the way that we do. He doesn't explode like that. He sees every single sin, and I'm amazed by the depth of our God's grace, mercy, and patience. And I'm so glad he waited till I got saved. How about you? I'm so glad for the mercy he's shown me. He knows you best, and he loves you most. He knows every wicked, foul thing you've ever thought that nobody else knows. He knows it all. He knows everything you're doing now or struggling with and everything you're ever going to do, and he still loves you. That's called grace, amen? So God's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles, the last person to be saved, and then he will unleash his holy wrath. In Romans 2, the rendering to everyone according to his deeds. Again, he suffers long, but he won't suffer always. So in this morning's text, we're not only transitioning from the things which are, the church age, to the things which come after this, the future events that will take place at the end of the church age after we've been raptured, but we're going to get a glimpse into heaven this morning. And I love it. I love it. I'm almost, I'm so heavenly minded these days. And most of you know, my 28 year old son went to heaven about a year and a half ago. And, you know, having him there, knowing where he is, makes me think about heaven even more. And I just think there's such a, there should be such peace in knowing where we're headed. Amen. You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen. The worst thing the world could do to me is the best thing that could happen to me. In scripture, There have been other glimpses into heaven. In Isaiah 6, it says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, they they flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. What is heaven going to be like? 
So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. When I, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Every time somebody has had a glimpse of heaven, they have no way to fully describe it. Apostle Paul, John. And then every time they just are in awe of who God is, and they don't think they can do it justice. So we got a glimpse of heaven coming in the next two verses. And when we get that glimpse of heaven, understand it's limited by his ability to explain what he has seen. Isaiah was called to be a prophet. His glimpse into heaven, seeing the Lord on his throne and in his glory, and he was undone. He was destroyed just by seeing the, the greatness of our God. It just put him at the end of himself. You'll hear people say, well, when I get to heaven, I got questions for God. I know you don't. I'm going to straighten him out. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think when we get to heaven, we're all going to be on our face, just blown away. Our God is greater than we think. Amen? No matter how great you think he is, he's greater than that. No matter how amazing you think heaven's going to be, it's going to be more amazing than that because it's finite man trying to understand infinite God, and it's just too much. Amen? And that's why when you see Paul and others refer to heaven, they're just, they can't describe it. It causes Isaiah to recognize his own weakness being in the presence of God. And when we truly look to the Lord in all his glory, righteousness, and greatness, we're, we ought to be undone. We ought to be brought to the end of ourselves. We ought to recognize our sin and our unworthiness to be used by him. This heavenly sight blew Isaiah away. Others, Ezekiel, saw the four living creatures in the throne, in the likeness of a man on the throne, the appearance of fire all around him. This is the appearance of the glory of his text. So describing the tabernacle, which symbolically describes heaven. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, speaks of a man being caught up into heaven. That's where we get the word harpazo in the Greek, rapturo in the Latin, where we get the word raptured into heaven. He saw things that were indescribable. He said, I can't even describe them to you. So the fullness of heaven is beyond our comprehension. It's far better than we can ever imagine. And the great tribulation upon the earth is God's righteous judgment. And that will be far worse than we can imagine. Heaven's far better, and the judgment of God is far worse than we can grasp. Amen? Hell is far worse than we can ever imagine. Heaven is far better. And I've heard it said that some people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I believe that we're mostly more so earthly-minded, we're no heavenly good. Guys, we should be thinking about eternity every single day. Amen? It should be painted on our eyes, and we should live in light of it. She says, after these things, I looked up and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. What does that sound like? Amen. Come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So now, again, if you haven't been here, this is the apostle John who's on the island of Patmos. At this point, we believe that all the other apostles have been martyred. John's the last one living. Uh, history tells us that he was boiled in oil but did not die because uh, God wasn't done with him. You're indestructible until God's through with you. Amen. So he goes out. He's on the island of Patmos, which is basically a, a rock that's a prison. And John is there, and he's in this place, and it's there where God is revealing the future to him and the book of Revelation, and he's writing it down. And so he's telling him in this vision that he's having, come up here. He calls him up off that dead rock into the presence of Almighty God. 
And it's there from that perspective that he is going to give us the rest of the book of Revelation. Notice he says the first voice. And this is the voice of Jesus calling John up to heaven through a door that is open to heaven. Ever wonder what the voice of the Lord sounds like in heaven? We're going to see in a minute. We just saw it. It's the sound of a trumpet. I mean, what does a trumpet do? I don't think he sounds like a trumpet, but as much as it's a picture of when you blow a trumpet, it gets everybody's attention. When they're getting ready to go off to war, they would blow a trumpet. When they were gathering the children of Israel together in the wilderness, they blow a shofar, a trumpet, right? And when the Lord speaks, it gets everyone's attention, amen? When he speaks, it's going to cut through all the noise, and here's the truth. And so the first voice here, again, we have a description of his voice. It's like a trumpet. doesn't mean it sounds like one, but you know how clear and distinct and how stirring a trumpet can be. When the Lord spoke, it was clear, it was distinct, it was heart stirring. The voice of the Lord spoke loud and clear to John, like the trumpet again that gathered the children of Israel together or lined them up for battle. The Lord's voice can cut through all the surrounding noise. It could not be ignored. It got John's attention. And then what did the Lord say? Come up here. Boy, I'm ready for some come up here. How about you? I'm excited about the come up here. John is called to heaven by the voice that sounds like a trumpet. What does that sound like? Right? Sound of the trumpet. Last tr- Boom. We're heaven bound in the presence of God. Clearly, this is a picture of what will happen to the church at the rapture, without any doubt in my mind. First Thessalonians says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen? When you're overwhelmed by the, uh, just uh, the depravity of the world and all the struggles that are going on in the world, by the way, the people that are struggling, we need to love them and pray for them, amen? We love everybody, amen? Often Christians are, are pictured as people that are, are self-righteous or, or, you know, or, or we, we, we hate people or we, the things we speak against. We ought to be the most loving, most gracious people on the planet, Amen? God loves us, and we don't deserve it, and we should love everybody. Now, it doesn't mean that because we love you, we have to agree with everything you do. Because they'll say, well, you, if, you, if you don't agree with me, you don't love me. No, I do love you, and I can still disagree with you. Amen? The Lord loves me, and he's not happy about some of the things I do. How about you? Amen? So the pattern here is significant. Jesus is finished speaking to the seven churches. Seven's the number of completeness in Scripture. And all the churches represented by these seven. And the church mentioned again 19 times in three chapters. And now he calls Paul up. He snatches him away, right? And now we don't see the church mentioned ever again. All of this happens before the great wrath that will begin being described in Revelation 6. So if you're here in a few, a few weeks, we're going to see the wrath of God being poured out upon the world. And again, each, each and it gets more and more severe because it's more and more opportunities for people to repent or to align themselves with the Antichrist or to continue to be hard-hearted. As great judgment on the earth unfolds, John, a representative of the church, picture of the church, is in heaven looking down, watching it. And during this time of God's righteous judgment, again, the church 
is not mentioned. To me, this is once again a clear picture of the tribulational rapture, pre-tribulational rapture of the church. God not pouring, his, not pouring out his wrath on his children. You heard me read the verses. He won't do that. And it, uh, but a wicked and rebellious world that has rejected him is where the judgment comes. So our price for our sin was paid at Calvary. Amen? He said, it is finished, right? Paid in full. And that's why purgatory makes absolutely no sense. It's nowhere in the Bible. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. We don't need to pray people that are halfway to heaven to get them the rest of the way. Can I get an amen to that? None of that's biblical. Again, when we close, if, as believers, we're all going to get snatched away either through the closing of our eyes and we're in God's presence, or he's going to snatch the church to get away all at one time. Amen? So if you come here next week and nobody's here... Our website is rapture-proof. Get on there and start studying and surrender your life to the Lord, and we'll see you when you get there. Can I get an amen to that? So he says, I will show you a few things that must take place after this. Again, the word after this, it's metatauta. Metatauta. Jesus is about to reveal future events and things which will take place after this, after the church age, after the church is gone. So the book is written between 90 and 96 AD, and yet there are those who will try to say that John is referring to events that already took place. AD 70 was pretty radical. That's when the temple was destroyed. That's when the Jews were overrun, when the nation of Israel basically ceased to exist. And when you would talk about Israel in the Bible, Prior to 1948, people would mock and say, well, Israel doesn't even exist. Well, guess what? God even used the Holocaust to bring a great amount of compassion toward the Jews so that Israel could become a nation again. Amen? Only nation in the history of the world that ceased to exist, yet its people still maintained their identity and then became a nation again. And we can talk about how the fig tree blooming again, right? And that's in the Bible, all pointing to the children of Israel. And what God is doing in Israel and in the Middle East right now is all being told about in the Bible that we're reading right now. Amen? So it's God. It's God's plan. And again, doesn't fit the text. And I just had this discussion literally this week. I just said to him, bro, I, you, got, you got a three-year-old, put him out by a viper, see how that works out. It's not working out right now. We're not in the millennial reign, amen? It's not, it's not where we are. And again, it's again, it's not a necessity. I try to get, he's a young guy and he's very full of himself and you guys don't get it. You know, and I'm like, okay. All right, bro. How long have you been saved? Nine months, but I read my Bible every, okay. Love you, bro. It's all good. Let's just... Agree to disagree, and you'll be glad when we get snatched away with us. Amen? So these are still future events that will take place. The fullness of the Gentiles, again, the church is raptured, and we, like John, are in heaven watching from there. Just come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So point number one, he rescues us, his bride, before he pours out his righteous judgment. Number two, his focal point, he is the focal point of heaven. Look what it says. Immediately, I was in the Spirit... And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. See, I was in the Spirit. So what does that mean? Was John filled with the Spirit who helped give him understanding of what he was about to see? Did John's body remain on earth, and only his Spirit was caught up into heaven? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul described his ascension, or rapture into heaven in a sense this way. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in his body 
I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven. So Paul experienced it and did not know what he could say. He had no words left. But here's what happened. I believe this happened when Paul went into Lystra. Remember, Paul went into Lystra and preached the gospel. What did they do to him? They stoned him. And they don't stop stoning you until you're dead. And we're not talking about stoned like people get stoned now. Amen. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. And then people were around him praying for him and he got back up. Now, I believe that's when he was, when he was you know, his body was dead, that he got a glimpse of heaven. And when he came back and he stood back up, what did he do? He went right back into Lystra and started preaching the gospel again because he had seen heaven. You could not threaten that brother with heaven. Amen. I don't think he would even move if they threw another rock. I'm right here. I'm moving. I'm not, but I'm going to preach the gospel. Here's the point. When we have a heavenly perspective, it's going to take away all the fear of what can happen to us in this life. Amen. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And I love that when he got a glimpse of heaven, he's like, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, and he says later, it's far better, you know, I'd rather be in heaven, but it's far better that I stay with you because I'm not done here yet. And we're still here because God's not done with us. Amen. And he wants to use us to minister to others. Ultimately, God knows. And Jesus did call John up to heaven as he will call each and every one of us one day very soon, either all together at the rapture or individually as we draw our first breath. Notice he says, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. Notice again, he doesn't say, and I was snatched up into heaven and the pearly gates are sweet. He didn't say that. He didn't say, and my grandmother gave me a hug. He didn't say that, who died before him. He doesn't talk about the people that are there, even though that's amazing and we all look forward to that. But he doesn't talk about the people that are there or the gold, the streets of gold. You know, in heaven, gold is asphalt right? And I don't think we're going to be blown away by the streets of gold because we're going to be so focused on the king of kings, amen? So when he gets a glimpse of heaven, what does he talk about? He talks about the throne of God. It's at the center of heaven, and Almighty God's presence is there, and he is, in, he is awestruck looking at the presence of Almighty God. Again, the first thing, again, not the pearly gates, the streets of gold, not the, not the angels, not the mansions, not his friends, but the throne of God and the one who sits on it. When the world thinks of heaven and attempts to describe it, usually a bunch of cloud with people floating around playing harps. That's not in the Bible anywhere. I can't amen to that. People say, heaven is going to be boring. All we're going to do is worship. That's it. We're not, it's going to be boring. I promise you, heaven is going to be amazing. Amen. It's going to be amazing. We're going to get there and go, why didn't I just have a horrible diet? I could have got here sooner. Amen. <laughs> why was I eating kale, man, and drinking that nonsense to stay down on that dumb rock longer? I could have been here sooner eating steak and potatoes. Amen. Now, we're to be good, we're to be good stewards of the bodies that God, the temple that God's given us. Can I get an amen to that? Right, Doc? We need to be good stewards. But heaven's better, amen? As Christians, we may think of the pearly gates, the golden streets, or heavenly mansions. Again, we think about the loved ones. That's what I think about the most. I have to be transparent. I think about hugging my son more than I think about any of the other stuff. 
But I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be so focused on the throne that the hug for my son's going to wait. Amen? We're going to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, before we take a deeper look into John's heavenly vision, again, I love to put myself in the shoes of the ones either receiving the instruction or interacting with the Lord. So let's put ourselves in John's sandals for a moment, right? Here you are on this earth living as a prisoner on a desolate, rocky island of Patmos for the past several years of your life has been a life of, of hardship, difficulty, no doubt hunger. And in the midst of difficulty, the Lord's been revealing truth to you. The letters to the seven churches and after the Lord's message concerning the churches has been completed, John, no doubt, not only writing it down, but contemplating all the Lord had communicated through him and sitting there in this desolate and rocky wasteland, John hears the voice of the Lord calling him to heaven. At one of his most desperate moments, he hears the Lord calling him to heaven. And in a moment, he's lifted out of the difficulty, the hardship, the desolation, it's all left behind. And now he's in paradise. He's in the presence of almighty God. And as he is there in the presence of Almighty God, he can hear the sounds of heaven. What does heaven smell like? It's going to be amazing. Amen? He sees the house, he feels the very presence of God. Again, the pearly gates, the golden streets, the mansions, the angelic hosts, the Old Testament saints, his martyred friends and family that have gone before him. He can't even begin to imagine how beautiful and awe-inspiring heaven is going to be. And what a contrast to the desolate place he had left. But notice that John notices first what immediately grabs his attention, and what ultimately makes heaven heaven, it's the throne of God. He's snatched away, he's in the presence, it's the throne of God. And it's not just the throne of God, it's the one seated on the throne. And he's the king of kings. What makes heaven heaven is the throne of God and who's sitting on it. Rest of John's description of heaven all in, revelation, all in relation to the throne and who sits on it, what's around the throne, what proceeds from the throne, and what's before the throne. And we'll look at that next week. Next week, we're going to see what's in front of the throne, what's before the throne, what's around the throne. We're going to finish up the message this morning just looking at who's on the throne. John is fixated on the, th- uh, the occupied throne, and everything else is described in relationship to it. One of the world's greatest struggles is recognizing Who's on the throne in heaven? The atheist would say there's no throne, there's no seat, there's no power, there's no God. That's all happened by random chance. We need to pray for them. Amen? I mean, you have to have scales over your eyes to think that all of this happened by random chance. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that things can't go from disorder to order, and evolution is built all on disorder to order. And people believe that because they're taught that. And we need to let them know that there's a truth, that there is a creator, that you're not a random chance. It didn't go from the goo to the zoo to you. Can I get an amen to that? God created you in his image, and we need to know that. The humanist would say there is a throne, but man sits upon it. That I'm on the throne. I'm in charge of my life. It's my truth, right? And we need to pray for them as well. Amen? Because there's a mentality, sadly, where you put yourself on the throne. And when you put yourself on the throne, then you're going to do whatever your flesh wants to do. And here's what you will find out. You will find out if you get everything the world has to offer, 
which nobody will, but even if you got everything, if you had all the money, all the fame, everything you could ever possibly want, you will never be satisfied because your flesh will never be satisfied because God created you to have a relationship with him and trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum with sex and drugs and money and fame and following and possessions and pleasures and everything else will never satisfy you because God created you to have a relationship with him. Amen? But the humanist says, I'm on the throne. Essentially, man cannot live without the concept of a throne, a supreme ruler. And if man dethrones God, he will place himself there. The communists had ruled forever. They would put their nation on the throne. I've been to Russia seven times. And I remember when I first went in the early 90s, uh, one of my interpreters was an older lady. And she said, every day she went to school, they said, good morning class, there is no God. That's how every class began. And they would talk about Mother Russia as being the God, or they make the emperor God, you know, Mao or Stalin or Lenin. Even now they still have, you know, Lenin's tomb and they march through his tomb, the dead body of a former communist who wiped people out. See, everybody's putting something on the throne and something that they're aspiring to and, and, or they just ignore it as the atheists would all together. And the reality is that there is a throne, whether you believe it or not, and almighty God is on the throne, whether you believe in him or not. Your belief doesn't make reality. It doesn't make it the truth. The truth is the truth. You know, again, there's hundreds of prophecies in this book all fulfilled. How's that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? You got 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. How's that possible? Because God wrote the book. Guys, we don't believe in spite of the evidence that would be foolish. Take an anatomy class and tell me that happened on accident. <laughs> Amen? I remember being in anatomy in college, and I'm like, people really think that this just happened? God created us in his image, and you're valuable to him. Amen? Amen. It's a reminder, again, that the, the, the nations try to have somebody in charge. Again, the atheists, no one's on the throne. Humanists place themselves on the throne. Communists try to put leaders on the throne. The truth is... God alone is on the throne. It says, and one sat on the throne. God alone sits on the throne in heaven. He shares it with no one. Amen? There he will be there forever on the throne. The fact is that God is on the throne is a, a powerful declaration of not only God's presence, but his sovereignty. He's in control. Isn't it good to know when it seems like everything is in chaos that God is in control? Amen? God is in control. God is faithful. God knows what he's doing. He's the rightful reign, reigning as the king of kings. His ability and prerogative to judge all of mankind, to graciously forgive and restore repentant sinners, but also to pour out righteous judgment upon those who remain in rebellion. At the center of heaven as an occupied throne, and the God of the Bible rules and reigns on the throne. He is on the throne in heaven, and that will never change. Amen? Say that a lot, and I'm going to start saying it more. God's on the throne. Amen. People go, man, did you see what the gas prices are? God's on the throne. <laughs> Amen? Whatever is going on in the world around us, God is on the throne. The question for each of us is this. Who's on the throne of your life? Who's on the throne? Are you on the throne? Or have we put Jesus there? Amen? You know, for us to follow him, we have to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. We deny ourselves. If you're on the throne of your life, let me ask you a question. This is between you and, and the Lord. How's that working out? 
Not so good. Amen. But when we put God there, it doesn't mean our life will be perfect, but the difference is that he's the one that rules and reigns over my life, not me anymore. Amen? Amen. Have you surrendered your life completely to him and given him the authority over your life? Have you made him not just Savior, but your Lord? When the trumpet sounds and he calls us home, will you be among the raptured to heaven into the very presence of Almighty God? Or will you be left behind the faith, the wrath, and righteous judgment of God? Does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? Have you been born again? Are you a new creation in Christ? Final verse, he says, And he who sat there was like, like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance like an emerald. And you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? Now, again, what's interesting about this, if you ever wonder how God will appear in heaven, in this verse, John gives a description of the one he saw seated on the throne. And notice he doesn't describe a distinct figure. He's not talking about how God looks in heaven. This is God the Father we're talking about. How God the Father looks in heaven. He's talking about what radiates from him. The glory that shines off of him. So he's in the center of it. I don't know that we'll ever see our heavenly father in a figure. I don't know how that's going to work in heaven. And I'm a finite man, so that's okay. Can I get him into that? But I believe his glory is illuminating the heavens. Amen. And when he looks at him, what does he see? He sees these beautiful colors. Now, the size and shape or dimensions, not some, again, not how tall he is or anything like that, but what illuminates from him. A jasper stone describes a precious stone, it's in Revelation 21, 11, that is clear as crystal like a diamond. It's a bright white light coming off the throne. So as he looks in the direction of the throne, he sees this bright light illuminating from the throne. A sardis stone is blood red in color. When you think of blood red, what do you think of? Amen. So as he looks at the, at the, he just sees this white light and this bright red light coming off of the throne that is enveloping him. And it's the thing that he notices. It's what comes off of the presence of Almighty God. In 1 Timothy, it describes, again, this bright white light. This way it says, he was blessed and the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, dwelling unapproachable in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting glory forever. So why the colors? Again, Pastor Dave's opinion to some degree. The white light presented the glory of, the, of God. When they went to the tomb... What did they see when it entered the tomb? They saw the bright white light, again, and the angels that were there. And it's a picture to me, again, of the resurrection, right? The, the bright white light, again, he's been risen. He's not there anymore. The Sardis stone, again, the red, right? The red light, the sacrificial love of the cross on the cross of Calvary. The bright light, again, the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb could also be linked to this. When you look in Exodus 39, and they describe all the stones on the priest's garment, the first stone is Jasper, and the last stone is Sardis, and he is, Jesus is the first and the last. Amen? He always has been. He always will be. But here we see this emanating from the throne of God, and he is blown away by the presence of God. And again, I love that picture. It may represent the fullness of his glory, the first and the last. Notice it says, as we finish up here, there was a rainbow around the throne, in the appearance like an emerald. In heaven, God's throne is surrounded by a green-hued rainbow. Why? 
Again, I believe because of God's promise of the initial rainbow that we saw, that we see every time we're driving around. I remember being at work. I just love when God does stuff. And I'm trying to witness to these guys. We've been talking about things. We're all standing at the window. This is about four or five years ago. And the brightest rainbow I've ever seen in my life is just lighting up the sky. And it goes all the way across. And everybody's like, dude, come look at this rainbow. And all of a sudden, people are gathering up. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I said, do you guys know what the rainbow is about? Do you know where it comes from? God's promise to never judge the earth by a flood ever again. And when you see the rainbow, you just think of God's promises. Amen? And surrounding the throne is a rainbow that's a reminder to us of God's promises. Amen? Because he is faithful to his promises. And it's, now again, a promise is only as good as the one that makes the promise. You ever had someone promise something and didn't do it? When God promises, he does it every time. Amen? So he's looking on this, just awe-inspiring, right? This light is coming off the throne. He sees the rainbow around it, and he's blown away by the greatness of God and the presence of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God, but also the fact that he's going to be faithful to the promises of God, and that should give us all great joy. Amen? That's the God that we serve. People mock God. I heard the most, I'm not going to repeat it, it was so blasphemous. I heard the most blasphemous thing I've ever heard in my life the other day. And I thought, man, our God is gracious. Man, and I need to, and I was angry with the guy who said it. And then the Lord just put on my heart, you need to pray for him. Because we're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Amen. We're all sinners saved by grace. That could be any one of us. If we ever got caught up in ourselves, we need to, to recognize that God so loved the what? That's everybody. He desires that none should perish. And this truth that we see about righteous judgment, we should be relieved that we're not going to face it, but we should be burdened for all that will. Amen? We should have a desire to let them know that they can be delivered from it. Again, around the setting of all the sovereignty, power, and authority, and glory, the setting of the throne of God, God has placed a reminder of his own promise to never destroy the earth by water again. And again, not just that promise, but all the promises in Scripture. God is in all power from complete control. And again, in His power, He will always be faithful to His Word. And that's why we need to read it. Amen? This is God's love letter to us, right? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? I mean, this is God's instruction for us, right, to understand and know him better. When we read his promises, just remember that this is coming from the almighty God who just said light is and light was, who created everything, the all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God, who is seated on the throne and, and, and light is shining from him because of his great and awesome glory. And that's the God that we serve. And he's the God that cares about the details of our life. Amen. And when you pray, that's who you're praying to. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And He hears our prayers and Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Guys, we serve a great and awesome God and I'm looking forward to heaven. How about you? So in closing, I'm so thankful for God's promises. I'm so thankful for His love and His grace and His infinite mercy. And I'm so thankful that again, we serve a risen and living Savior. If you go to Israel with us, we're going to go to the empty tomb. We're going to see it. He's not there. Buddha's dead. All the Hindu idols are created by man. 
all the false gods and, uh, you know, of this world, Confucius, all these other false teachers, they all died. And the difference is we don't serve a dead prophet. We serve a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? Amen. And next week, we're going to start getting into it more. Read ahead. You don't have to wait. You can read ahead. It's okay. I encourage you to do so. So in closing, a glimpse into heaven, God is on the throne. He rescues his bride before he pours out his righteous judgment. Again, he has not appointed us unto wrath. He took all the wrath upon himself on the cross of Calvary so that we might be delivered from it. Point number two, he is the focal point of heaven. He is, the reason heaven is great is because he is there. Amen. And that's why we long to be there. And then finally, he is sovereign in his power and faithful to his promises. He is God, he's in control, and he's faithful to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. And Lord, I pray this morning, if anybody here does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Among God's promises, he says this, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to him, that you, maybe you know about the Lord, but you have not surrendered your life to him. You have not given him the throne of your life. Again, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. You would not leave here without him. Again, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. Jesus said this, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father in heaven. I'm not asking you to join a church. We don't have church membership here. You show up, you're part of the family. But I'm asking you, if you're on the throne of your life and you're ready to surrender that to the Lord, that's your desire, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are and I want to pray with you, anybody at all. Don't leave here without the Lord. He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. He's a great and an awesome and a loving God. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. Lord, we thank you for the promise of heaven. May we be filled with joy knowing, Lord, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Help us to have a heaven, be heavenly minded, have an eternal perspective as we live this life. And Lord, give us a supernatural love for those around us that don't know you, to love them, to be a Christ-like example to them, to care for them the way that you do. If someone needs a hug, use our arms. If someone needs a word of encouragement, use our lips. Lord, be glorified in our lives. We long for the day that we will see you face to face. But until then, Lord, help us to be faithful to the calling you've placed upon our lives. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name, we pray. And all God's people said...